Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Danny Shapiro, is the best-selling author of the memoirs Still Writing, Devotion, and Slow Motion, and five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, Tin House, One Story, Elle, The New York Times Book Review, and On This American Life. She has taught in the writing programs at Columbia, NYU, The New School, and Wesleyan University, She's a contributing editor at Condé Nast Traveler, 
and she's the co-founder of the Sirenland Writers' Conference in Positano, Italy. Perhaps Benjamin Samuel, in his interview at The Rumpus, sums up Danny Shapiro best when he says, wherever you happen to be in your writing life, Danny Shapiro has been there before. She's done MFA. She's done NYC. She's published memoirs, novels, essays, and short stories. She's a working mother and a working writer. Her book tours have taken her to indie bookstores and to Oprah's inner sanctum. And yet she is still subject to the same bewildering and wearing struggle that all writers face, the struggle to write and keep writing. Danny Shapiro is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest memoir, Hourglass, Time, Memory, Marriage. The Boston Globe says Shapiro has never written anything as raw, dark, or brave as Hourglass. Beth Ann Patrick at Lit Hub says Hourglass might already be a classic, that she has never read a more honest or tender evocation of what it's like to live with a partner through thick and thin. And author Jenny Offal says, reading this book was like skating across a perfect piece of ice and then slowly noticing the cracks. Dark, cold water shows through. We can't see the depths. Be careful, Shapiro warns. Be careful. But still, she skates on in the fading light with remarkable beauty and grace. Welcome to Between the Covers, Danny Shapiro. Thanks, David. It's really good to be here with you. So you've called yourself an accidental memoirist, that you've never thought you'd write a second memoir, let alone a third, and, and now a fourth memoir. So I'm curious if you could talk about the impulse that ultimately became Hourglass, um, when and how you recognized that this was your next writing project, or in other words, what made you sit up and realize that now is the time to write about your marriage? Mm. Yeah, I was um, I was away from home. I was teaching at a place in Florida called the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Um, it was a kind of lonely and um, very claustrophobic experience for me during the weeks that I was there. I was there as a master artist teaching two hours a day, and the rest of the time I had to write. And during that time, I thought what I was doing was finishing an essay that I had been struggling and struggling with. Uh, the title of the essay was The Virtual Dementia Tour. And what I thought it was about was time and memory and inheritance. I was writing about things that I inherited from my mother after she died. It was in a kind of fragmentary um, mosaic structure with objects being what separated the passages. And I finally thought that I cracked it while I was there, and I was feeling pretty great about that because prior to that, my book Still Writing had come out, and I had been traveling a lot and speaking to writers about writing, but I wasn't writing. And it was really the fraud police were starting to kind of be out in full force. And, and so I finally felt like, oh, I've finished this essay that really practically broke my back, and I'm going to send it to my agent when I wake up in the morning. And I went to sleep, and I woke up in the morning, and I thought this is not an essay. It was an essay, but this, is, this doesn't want to be an essay. It wants to be a book, and it's not about inheritance, uh, at least not the way that I was thinking of it. It's about, it wants to be about marriage, my marriage, and I've been sk skating around this, staying away from it, feeling like it was way too much of a, just a hot, hot potato, like a hot button. Um, and then there it was, and it really just felt irrefutable, which is what happens to me when the thought of a memoir appears to me. That is what's happened 
with each of my memoirs, it's been that sense of almost that there's kind of a concomitant dread that goes along with the realization that this is what I must do. Hmm. Well, this reminds me of a quote that you have in uh, your essay entitled, A Memoir is Not a Status Update. You quote Adrienne Rich from an essay she wrote about Emily Dickinson. Uh, And I also, before I read the quote, I just imagine you have the most amazing book of quotes that you've written down over the years because the, so many of the quotes in Hourglass and in your essays are, are really remarkable. But here's the quote that reminds me of what you just said. Um, it is always what is under pressure in us, especially under pressure of concealment, that explodes into poetry. Is that, does that ring true to you around this um, revelation of what you were writing when you didn't realize what you were writing? Yeah, I think I think so. I think that that um, that sense of what has not revealed itself yet—that kind of begins—it's almost like a physical pressure. I, I I really love that Adrian Rich quote, and I I often quote it when I teach. Um, that sense of um, what have I been keeping secret from myself in some way, and what do I need to uh, explore, uh, inquire into, uh, in order to be able to figure that out. I mean, one of the things fairly recently that I've come to think about memoir is, I mean, why, why write it if you know the story? Uh, I, I, I don't understand the impulse, at just telling the story. Uh, it's become infinitely more interesting to me to go sort of inside a lived experience and begin to see what's there that I don't know yet. And and so, yeah, so it came from that sense of, um, yeah, an almost unbearable pressure that then finally it's like the the dread happens, the resistance comes along with the dread, the oh, no, you can't possibly goes along with that. And then finally the, 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 the final action and beginning is like a hurling myself at the page mm-hmm. um, with really a sense of, um, you know, just... You know, fuck it, really. Like you know, what what else can I possibly do other than begin this? It, it, there's almost a despair to it. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you mentioned the role of objects in the essay that you were writing, and I I found one of the most moving parts of the book was the way you used um, you compared a long marriage to an enduring object. So at one point you you talk about artifacts or family heirlooms that have endured despite the passage of time and which many of us might think of as being particularly durable because they've they've endured. But you kind of flip the narrative around what uh, an object or artifact is like that has endured so long and argue the opposite, that, that when you think of all the objects that have fallen apart, all the objects that have broken or disappeared throughout time, that these enduring objects, and by extension, um, enduring marriages, are actually preternaturally fragile. Um, and need to be treated as such and handled as such if they're going to continue to endure. Can, mm. can you talk about that mm. and how you um, came to that realization? When, when so many people think of, um, oh, this person's been married for 50 years, that must mean that their marriage is so strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't see those ideas as being in opposition with each other. I think something can be very strong and very delicate at the same time. And I think 
the word delicate was very much in my mind, and it's it's in the book, I think in a passage that you're referencing where I'm talking about this uh, particular kind of French pottery, faience pottery that I had brought home, that we had brought home on our honeymoon with us, and that I'm very aware that when we use it, that it's not chipped, you know, that, but also this idea that maybe someday it will be, um, as someday everything is. But the idea of that fragility or thinking of something as valuable in its fragility, um, I just found very beautiful. And, and I think also that objects, like from the very beginning, one of the things when I tore up that essay, the Virtual Dementia Tour, one of the first things that I did was scribble the word woodpecker in the margin. I, there, I just knew that this woodpecker that had been visiting our house uh, and was going to continue visiting our house you know, forevermore until his children and grandchildren started visiting our house, um, that, that, he, that this bird needed to open the book in some way. And I was aware that the bird was a bird, but also that the bird was a metaphor. And objects started to really assume this metaphorical quality in a way that's very different from writing fiction. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, and it's been a while since I've written fiction, but if, if, if a writer of fiction is sitting there and thinking, I am writing a metaphor, that writer is writing a crappy metaphor, almost invariably. Mm. Metaphor comes from this much murkier place in writing fiction, and often the writer's the last to know, um, or in multiple drafts starts to understand something about it, but certainly not in the impulse. In memoir, I actually think that the, the act of recognizing metaphor in one's own life can be a really powerful aspect of memoir. So the woodpecker was a woodpecker, but the woodpecker was a metaphor. And the faience pottery was this faience pottery, but it also uh, became in the hands of the writing uh, something else, something that was representative of, of needing to take care or to value uh, that sense, it's, it, what you're, it's in a passage about um, things we brought home from our honeymoon because I'm sure we're going to end up talking about the journals that I brought home from my honeymoon, but uh, in those journals, I was so struck by the way that I was writing down objects. You know, we went to look for a watch. My husband bought two nice shirts. Um, we brought home olive oil and we saved it. Hmm. I mean, what... <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking. I guess we didn't know much about olive oil, but you can't right. do that. And we brought it, we brought these bottles home. We took great care with them. They clanked home in our carry-on, and you know we got them all the way home in perfect condition. Then we didn't open them, and they they went bad after a while. We saved them for too long. So so all of that felt to me enormously rich in terms of um, what it was saying about a relationship, about the passage of time about the futility of trying to hold on to um, some kind of ideal or perfection or to, I mean, it's, it's, it's ironic or at least paradoxical that um, in a way a memoir freezes time. This is a document of the middle, or I hope it's the middle, 18 years into a marriage. You know, I'm, I'm, giving readings now from the book, you know, since it came out, and it's already 20 years. Mm. And 
you know, their 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 time has already marched on. My my mother in law, who has Alzheimer's and suffering from Alzheimer's in the book, died this year. Mm-hmm. And there are two dogs in the book, and one is old and demented, and he's dead too. And whenever I give a reading from the book, I have this feeling of, oh, well, there it is, there it is. I froze I froze it between the hard covers of a book, but it's already moved forward. And um, and just that. That obsession, too, with time and the way that time um, both strengthens and abrades and erodes and everything that it everything that it does was so much at the heart of the book for me. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Danny Shapiro about her latest memoir, Hourglass. You mentioned the opening, which I love. And I do agree that it, that it feels like it feels metaphorical and it feels like it's almost like a physical enactment of the fragility and also perhaps of even a memory in the sense that most people would think of a house as being a place of security. And here we have this woodpecker who's poking holes in the house and there's a list of, of things that um, are not being done that you would like to get done for the house that is accumulating. And it feels like things are fraying at the edges around sort of maintaining a, a, a house that's a home. And, um, and yet the, it, it prompts you to do sort of a, a house cleaning that unearths these journals that you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you've, you've discovered something from your past in this turning over of, of, of the house to mm-hmm. try to make it stronger again. Mm-hmm. It, it feels in a way like your confrontation with your younger self is as much central to Hourglass as your marriage and that they're in, interconnected or that you interconnect them. Talk to us about uh, you seeing your, your voice on the page as a younger self mm. and, and what role that's playing in, in investigating um, time and your marriage. Yeah, no, I, 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 I also think of them as sort of equally, like having equal weight in, in, in the book. Um, the journals, well, there are two different sets of journals. There are the journals that I discovered during the house cleaning that are from our honeymoon that I didn't recollect keeping that were like a log of what we did and that were very strange little documents where as I looked at them, I thought, who was this bride? You know, what I, uh, I really just kind of unemotionally wrote down where we went, what we ate, what we were reading, uh, what we were buying, um, just a kind of where where we were, what hotel we're in, what the quality of the bed sheets was, and the towels, and um, you even mentioned it as kind of like a trash receptacle, so that you could write other things elsewhere. Or is that, that the other? That's one? the other one. That's the other one. The other ones, which were copious, like shelves of journals that I had kept from the time that I was sixteen or so, all the way through my twenties and into my thirties. They morphed from cloth-bound books, even with you know locks and, you know, like girl, girlish kind of journals all the way through um, finally starting to keep them on a computer and printing them out and having big fat, you know, um, typewriter paper boxes filled with just reams and reams of pages. And, and they've, I've moved, you know, any number of times in my adult life and they've always survived the move and come with me. Um, and yet at the same time, they were a source of embarrassment and mortification and it felt like the girl very much I was very keyed into the age 17 um, which in the 
you know, the writer being the last to know department, it really wasn't until I finished the book that I thought, why 17? Why 17? Well, my son was 17. Hmm. Um, my son just turned 18. And I have boundless compassion for him and for uh, all of his friends, and yet very little for myself, very little for that, for that young woman. And I tell the story in the book of when I was writing my first memoir, Slow Motion. I, I mean, I, I, I refer to it pretty elliptically, but when I was writing my first memoir, I went to Yaddo, and I brought all of those journals with me because I thought, well, I'm going to have to do a deep dive into that young woman. I'm writing about her, and I need to you know, get back inside her voice and figure out what made her tick. And I started reading those journals my first morning at Yaddo after breakfast. And it was such a horrifying experience that I actually pretty much passed out. I, there was a fainting couch in my room. And I started reading the journals, and then it was four hours later, and I woke up, and I had laid down apparently on the couch and went to sleep, and I was filled with despair. I really thought, I'm not going to be able to write this book. That girl doesn't deserve a book. Her voice is so annoying to me and solipsistic and self-centered, and because I was 17. Um, and I packed up the journals, and I put them in the trunk of my car. I couldn't even have them in my room with me. And then I went back inside the writing of that book, trying to write it from the voice of a woman in her early 30s looking back at that time in her life. Um, so I never thought that I was going to access those journals again, and yet I didn't burn them. I didn't get rid of them. And every once in a while, if I was on a really bumpy flight or you know, in a, in a storm in an airplane, I would think, the journals, the journals. Why haven't I burned the journals? Because I don't, truly don't want anyone to ever read them. So why do I have them? And I think in Hourglass, I actually came, I, I arrived at the answer of why I've had them, because I was actually able to use them. And I think I had survived like, like a, enough, there was enough time now between the grown woman who is the mother of a 17-year-old and her 17-year-old self to be able to feel a different kind of um, you know, less embarrassment and mortification and more of a sense of um, longing almost. Like there's, there's a moment uh, in the book where I discover this photographer named Chino Otsuka and this remarkable body of work that she did. Very, uh, not very many pieces, maybe there are eight or ten of these images that I love so much. And in them, she photoshops her adult self into childhood images of herself. And they are so haunting and really just moving. But as I as I meditated on them and 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 just thought about them and lived with them, what I realized was that she never actually touches her younger self. She doesn't put a hand on her shoulder. Technically, she would have had the skill to do that. She hovers. It's like she's a, almost a ghostly presence. She can't she can't quite reach out and touch that girl and say whatever she would say, it's going to be okay, or, you know, you can't imagine what's going to happen to you in your life, or I'm here, or anything. And so that, for me, was like the photographic representation of what I was trying to do in that part of the book, of just, you know, my editor said a wonderful thing when, when she acquired Hourglass, which I had finished before I sold it. Um, she, she was someone who really loved slow motion, and she said, 
it's like the girl in slow motion is calling out to the woman in hourglass and the woman in hourglass is calling back to the girl. Hmm. And I found that just really moving. I didn't think of it of it that way as I was writing the book at all, but now when I see them side by side, they exist that way with each other. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a question about something you said about finding your way into s- slow motion by writing f- with distance as a 30-something woman looking back at your 17-year-old self. And uh, that's advice that's often given in memoir, uh, that you need distance to one subject, the passage of time to be able to render it well. Um, And I'm curious if that's something you believe or something you have believed and how then you grapple with Hourglass, which isn't just a relationship to your past self, but to an ongoing marriage that you want to stay in. So um, you're not able to have that distance with your partner in the same way. You have a history and you can look at the past of your marriage, but you also have an ongoing marriage. Right, right. Um, So tell us about that. And if you do believe in the distance being necessary to memoir, how do you navigate it with regards to Hourglass? I used to really, uh, you know, that, that would have been as close to a hard and fast rule that I would have had. And as a teacher, I would often speak to my students who were working on memoir about distance, and I would say things like, uh, in order to be able to write memoir, you have to have the capacity to be ironic about your own life. It's very difficult to be ironic about a moment that you're in as you're in it. Um, Certainly, Slow Motion was a memoir that illustrated that, and and the books that I read and, and admired were books that were told from a sometimes a great distance, like Toby Wolf's uh, This Boy's Life or uh, Jeffrey Wolf's Duke of Deception or uh, Frank Conroy's Stop Time, just to name a few. And um, something changed on me at a certain point. When, when, my, when, when, when I realized also with the uh, horror that went along with it uh, that, that I needed to write my memoir, Devotion, it was literally like I saw the word devotion. I knew what it meant and that which is under pressure of concealment. You know, I was not happy about it at all, um, but felt it very strongly. That book also was very much uh, written from inside of a lived life as the life was being lived. So almost a kind of um, investigative journalism of the self rather than from from a distance. There was there was an aspect of it that had to do with memory and with childhood and with digging back into certain um, elements of my childhood as an Orthodox uh, Jew and and, um, who my father was to me in terms of my spiritual life and who my mother was. But there was a present in the book that was unfurling as it was happening. I didn't know what would happen. Um, I kind of embarked um, as if I was a reporter on assignment in a way. Um, and I didn't know that could be done, and I didn't know it could be done as I was doing it. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Um, and then with Hourglass, it became distilled even more. It was, um, But there was a distance, and that's why I think your question is really interesting, because it wasn't like, well, I'm just going to go inside of this and write from the white-hot center of it. Um, one of my favorite quotes about writing is um, I've carried it around with, with me for years and years, um, never transcribed it into a commonplace book of mine, but it's actually on a page in one of my old filofaxes that I just transferred year after year, just old-fashioned paper. And um, 
It's attributed to the playwright Edward Albee, but I've never been able to find it, so I don't know. Um, I could just appropriate it, but I, when I heard it, it was from Edward Albee, and it was. He, he was talking about rage, but you could substitute any emotion for this. And what he wrote was that in order for the rage to work aesthetically, the writer has to write from the memory of his feelings. And he goes on to say, observed rage is coherent or can be coherent. Um, rage is incoherent. And a, a, the observed emotion can be coherent, but the emotion itself is incoherent. That I absolutely believe, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the writer can't write from the onrushing present. Mm. And um, I wouldn't recommend it to somebody just starting out. I feel like it's my ninth book, and I felt in a way that, the, I, that I had the capacity to both transcend and be observing um, sort of what was happening and finding the shape in it, finding from a literary standpoint and a craft standpoint what the shape was as I was also living it. Mm -hmm. And also I was very interested in showing the seams as I was writing it so that there was, there's the book and there's the writing of the book, which is also something that as a teacher I tend, I have tended in the past to say, oh, you don't want to do that. It's going to pull the reader right out of the story, reminds the reader that the reader's reading, messes with the sense of suspension of disbelief, and yet here I was doing exactly that. Mm. I, I, the, the longer I write and the longer I teach, the more I think that there's no such thing really as a hard and fast rule, except for maybe something to do with like adverbs <laughs> or too many exclamation points, but well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe your next one, <laughs> right. right? Well, you do do some interesting things with distance that I, I don't know if they're related to or ways in which you're navigating this and uh, this issue of writing the onrushing on present, but you do have obviously the relationship between you now and you in the past with the journals, but you also have this discovery that your younger self wrote, referred to yourself in the third person, which was both um, distancing in the younger self itself, but also distanced you from the younger self. You're like, why would a person write about themselves in this way? That was in the honeymoon journal, so it wasn't even that much younger self. I mean, it was a younger self. It was me as a bride, you know, 18 years earlier, but um, certainly it wasn't as distant as, as me as a teenager or as a young woman, in, mm -hmm. where, where I did write about myself, in fact, in the first person. <laughs> so there was something very strange and um, that I, you know, I, I, that, that I was very surprised about, both in that I didn't remember doing that, and why did I do that? And, and for me, it raises the question, and, and it's, a, it's a central question in the book for me, of who are these former selves, or are they former? You know, who are these younger selves? Uh, I mean, I recently found some correspondence, um, went back into the basement, cleaning out more stuff, and there were files and files of my mother's that I had never looked at, and they, were, uh, they contained with, within them a lot of letters that I had written her as a child. And my given name um, is, I've, I've always hated it. It's not Danny, uh, and it's not Danielle. People will always say, is it Danielle? And I just say yes, because it's easier. But it's this dreadful name that basically looks like Danielle spelled wrong. It's Daniel, D-A-N-E-I-L-E. -E. It's a completely made-up name. Hmm. And um, I'm actually finally legally changing it to Danny, but that's another story. Um, I, if you had asked me, I had always told you that I referred to myself as Danny from the time that I could speak. And yet there are these letters that are signed to my mother 
that are signed Daniil. And I was like, I don't remember doing that. I don't remember thinking of myself with that name ever. Who's that child? And where is she? Like just this idea of almost like those Russian dolls that open up and open up and open up and they're the smaller and smaller and smaller dolls inside of that original doll. Um, I really just am so fascinated with those questions. You know, is she is she still alive in me? Was I visible in her? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that re- reminds me of the thing that I think is the great accomplishment of this book. It's that sense of vertigo around time. I felt like you orient me in relationship to time and by extension to my own mortality uh, in, in a way where I had the sense while I was reading the book, this is going to sound morbid, but I actually see this as a great achievement of the book, that I could die at any moment. Mm. And so there was this like <laughs> stripping away of the veil yeah. of um, routine and realizing, again, the fragility of the things that have endured and that anyone in my life or myself included could disappear and, 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 or have something happen that you know changes things irrevocably. And it felt, it was it, when you talk about writing in the onrushing present, um, which sounds easy just in the superficial sense and it's obviously requires an enormous amount of craft, there, there really was a sense of, of everything being stripped away and this, this vertigo of, um, of time passing. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's so much the way that I've been thinking for so long now. Um, you know, the, the Wislawa uh, Shimbo, I mean, I, when I, when I, when I recorded the audiobook, I could not say her name, I had to do it 25 times, Wislawa Shimborska, the, the, the Wislawa Shimborska poem could have, um, that I include a piece of in, in, in Hourglass, it's like um, almost a, an anthem for me, uh, this idea. I mean, the poem begins, it could have happened, it might have happened, it happened nearer, farther off, it happened but not to you, you know. And the poet just goes on to uh, describe the way that essentially turn right, turn left in life, these small decisions that we make that have profound impact and that could be a terrifying thing. Or in the same way as the idea that, um, or as my Buddhist friend who's 80 years old, who I quote in the book at some point, says, the future even a second from now is an actuarial guess. That could be utterly terrifying. If, if one woke up in the morning and thought, my future a second from now is an actuarial guess, you might not want to get out of bed. It might be so scary. On the other hand, it can be such a profoundly enlivening way to think about uh, life and time and the world um, and the sense of the preciousness of it. Um, and and that's just something that I've been really thinking about and, and kind of obsessed about for a long time because I used to be much more someone who was, w- it's very different from waiting for the other shoe to drop. I mean, that was just, I was, that's my inheritance. That's my, I come from a, a people who are just always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And eventually it will. I mean, that's just, it's like a truism. The other shoe will drop at some point. But if you actually spend your whole life worrying about that other shoe, you're missing everything. There's this beautiful um, Hebrew Sabbath prayer that I love that begins, 
days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. It's the only part of it I always remember, but I just have always in my adult life thought I don't want to be sightless in that way. And I think that sense of being up against this idea that um, there is so much fragility and uncertainty actually helps to not be sightless. Hmm. And it makes me think, I think you've talked about the. I don't know if it was in Hourglass or in one of your essays, but the the Hebrew blessing, may your, may your memory be a, a blessing. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The idea of like holding people through time the, yeah. rather than a, a literal afterlife. The afterlife is in, in memory right, through right, time. Right, right. No, I've, I've always found that, well, beautiful and true. That's something, you know, I can get behind. I don't know what I think about anything else, but I think yeah. that that can certainly be the case, holding people in our memory. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time for people to hear a little bit from the book. Sure. Do you, do you mind? No. Some facts. At the moment I write this, I am 52. M is 59. Both ages seem unlikely to me, as if perhaps I'm making this up. But here we are. We've been married for almost 18 years. Our son is nearly 16. We have two dogs, one large, one small. We have attended 12 weddings, nine bar or bat mitzvahs, six graduations, five funerals. We have set foot in 22 states, seven countries, two continents. We have flown 146,000 miles and easily driven twice that. My car alone is about to hit 200,000 miles on the odometer. We've held each other's hands while waiting for biopsy results. We have had a baby and came very close to losing that baby. We have had three fights bordering on violent, a handful of terrible arguments after which we have limped, stunned, and wordless into our own corners. 18 years. My father has been dead nearly 30 years, car accident. My mother, 13, lung cancer. M's parents are still living. His mother has Alzheimer's. His father can hardly see and strains to hear. He stopped driving only when his license was revoked. Up until then, it worked like this. My mother-in-law, blessed with perfect eyesight but lacking in memory, would let my father-in-law know when a stop sign was coming up and read him street names. Together, they drove that car. You've been listening to Danny Shapiro read from Hourglass, Time, Memory, Marriage. I'm going to read another quote that you include in this book that I also love by Wendell Berry from an essay of his entitled On Poetry and Marriage. And in it, he says, Form serves us best when it works as an obstruction to baffle us and deflect our intended course. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And then when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. This feels like a kindred sentiment to the origins of the word memoir, Um, not just French memory, but the Greek and Persian to be anxious, to exhaustively ponder, and to vividly wonder. And I wondered myself if bafflement and even an anxious wonderment was something that underlies an enduring relationship in some fashion, or if it somehow underlies uh, the impulse to investigate your marriage at this point. It certainly underlines the impulse to investigate it. I don't experience my marriage itself as 
baffling as much as um, I suppose wanted to understand some of, um, you know, the act of memoir is to impose a shape on a life and a life, a lived life in the middle of itself is shapeless. Uh, You know, my husband is a screenwriter and classically screenplays have three act structures. And one of the things he always says, especially when he's adapting a biopic is, you know, first acts are clear, third acts are clear, second acts are just one damn thing after another. (laughs) And, you know, this entire hourglass, this entire book is about, is, is placed in the second act. That's where it is. And um, I loved I loved that you just read that Wendell Berry uh, quote, and because it was so important to me. Thinking, I mean, I it was one of those quotes that I read, and I thought, "That's it. That is exactly it. That is just where I am. I want to write from that impeded stream. I want to see what I can make sing from that place." So the impulse was completely, yeah, just a, a, a sense of bafflement. And wanting to do that great, that the thing that creates, I think, the most pleasure in writing memoir, which is finding uh, some kind of form or shape for that bafflement or for that chaos or that that sense of um, of of making the unknown known. We have a quote on the same page by Terry Tempest Williams that says, "A mosaic is a conversation between what is broken." And I bring that up because of this question of form. So if Wendell Berry is talking about form uh, is only valuable insofar as it serves as an obstruction to baffle us, and we're talking about what sort of form is going to best serve Hourglass, uh, and you've talked a lot about adoring mosaic-style writing, and uh, here we have a mosaic is a conversation between what is broken. Mm. Um, so obviously you're using mosaic as a metaphor for the, for marriage. Mm-hmm. But also, um, it's the form of the book itself. What is a mosaic style mm. form in your mind? And I would also say it's it's it 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 has to do with and mirrors in many ways memory, and the way the way that we remember that we don't remember, uh, really ever in a kind of chronological or narrative way. So, um, in a certain respect, the memoir that is a seamless story um, that moves forward is. Um, even more of a construction than pulling it apart and making it mem- making it mosaic. Um, what was the What was the original question? Well, I'm curious I, I, what what how you would describe what mosaic style writing is. Mm, you've you've mm. said before there's a math to it and a calculus that's complicated. And yeah. so I was curious for someone who doesn't know what that is. Yeah. is it is it different than? Uh, sort of associative collage and juxtaposition, or is, is there something more to a, a mosaic style writing than, than that? I spent a lot of time considering um, and learning what the patterns were in it. Um, and actually, at a, at a certain point in the writing of it, a friend, a very well-meaning friend, gave me one of those adult coloring books. Um, and the one that she gave me actually was mosaics, pages and pages hundreds of pages of mosaics. And I was very excited. I thought, oh, this is going to be really fun. When I'm not writing, I can sit here and color this in, and it's going to be a good meditative thing. I got some really nice pencils and great mug, set myself up. And the first day that I started coloring in these mosaics in the coloring book, I hated it so much. 
I, I felt angry and frustrated and, oh, it was just awful. Uh, you know, this sense of, you know, I just really, I shouldn't be doing this. I put them away, got rid of the pencils and the mug. And the reason why, I think, is because in that form of, in mosaic as we think of it on a, on a floor or on a wall uh, or in a dome, um, it has a regular pattern to it. So every red triangle needs to be a red triangle and every green square needs to be a green square and it has to repeat in a certain uh, rhythm. And that's the great challenge, I think, of writing um, a mosaic style narrative is that there does need to be a pattern, there does need to be repetition. The reader needs to feel held by it in some way. It can't simply be, it's funny, uh, people keep on asking me, did you sort of write all these pieces and then assemble them? And I can't imagine writing that way. Uh, it was associative. Um, and then at a certain point, what is associative becomes deliberate. And there were times over the course of writing this you know, slim book that I would I had a notebook where I would write every single scene down in a pat, you know, to see what's the pattern, what's the pattern, what's the pattern. But it wasn't like, oh, every sixth passage, the woodpecker needs to return or anything, right. anything like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what would you say the role of the white space is in Hourglass, since that that is definitely calling attention to itself in, yeah. in the memoir, also. Yeah, the white space was so important to me in this book that I think I may have driven my publisher completely crazy toward the very, very end of, you know, when it's about to go to the press and at the point where the writer's, you know, like no longer welcome in, in the process. You've seen first pass, you've seen second pass. I was still asking to see the very, very last pass before it was printed because I was afraid that if any of the white space was gotten wrong, it would really affect and change the reader's experience. Um, I view the white space in Hourglass as a place where the reader can reside um, and make associations, make his or her own associations between passages. Um, this wasn't something I, I thought about as I was working it, working on it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, it was deliberate, but it wasn't, the, but its motivations were not completely clear to me. And since finishing it, one of the things that I've seen is that people read it almost like a Rorschach um, wherever someone is in their life, in their in their romantic life, in their relationship life, whether they're single or married for a long time, or newly married or divorced, what or you know in a long partnership or, or or widowed, they are seeing themselves and their relationship, which I think is what good memoir does. It allows for that possibility of, um, I mean that's that that's what makes memoir universal when it is, but the white space is where the reader can reside to do that. So it's a negative space. They're fill, the the reader is is coming into the text essentially in the white space. Yeah, and and doing the work of relating the previous passage to the next one instead of my drawing an arrow, you know, a neon arrow, saying here's here's how these passages relate. Yeah. Well, part of so part of the mosaic which we've touched on are a lot of these these quotes that you've you've brought into the text. There's the journals both earlier in your life two sets of journals, and there's the, your own history with your husband. But then you also bring in uh, the stories of the lives of literary couples. Mm. Um, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, 
Jane Kenyon and Donald Hall. Can can you talk a little bit about what role these are playing mm. in as a, a counterpoint to your own relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, I I wanted to write about being a couple who are both artists, and the the beauty of that and the terror of that, the um, you know the high wire act of that, um, and I was writing that about myself and M, and very early on, and also simply because of the way that I've um, always thought of and you know looked toward role models um, in in all sorts of ways in, in my life. I mean, Joan Didion and John Donne uh, were that for, for me and for us. I mean, I remember flying back from L.A. when we were out there um, having meetings because various studios wanted to adapt slow motion, and there was a movie star involved. It was actually Reese Witherspoon, and there was all this stuff going on, and we were mentally kind of building the swimming pool. Not really. I never wanted a swimming pool, but <laughs> metaphorically building the swimming pool. Right. And um, and what we were reading on that flight back from those very heady meetings was uh, John Donne's book, Monster, which is all about Hollywood and his relationship with Didion and their relationship with Hollywood. And and so it's always been that way for me. I mean, uh, Don- Donald Hall and, and, and Jane Kenyon and the way that they wrote about each other both in their poems um, and in their essays, and um, and then the way that Don has written about Jane uh, since she passed away, uh, and 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 Virginia and Leonard Wolf. I mean, I, I Virginia Wolf's writer's diary is my I Ching. I keep it on my desk. I open it whenever I'm lost, which is often. And she always has whatever page I open it to. She has what I need, always, mm-hmm. without fail, eerily so. So these relationships with these writers and these literary couples, and I mean, I, and I write in the book, they don't always end well, um, you know, for the writer, um, or in, in some cases for the couple. Um, but the sense of the endeavor, of the attempt of two people to be artists together, um, and and to have that lack of security, and yet at the same time, that sense of uh, of great partnership. I'm hoping you'll read another little section for us because the part, the quote from Donald Hall about his theory that every marriage needs a third thing uh, and that a third thing is essential for marriages to endure. Uh, I would love it if you could read his theory on page 46 for us. Ever since M and I have been together, I have been drawn to the marriage and work of literary couples. Elizabeth Hardwick and Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, Jane Kenyon and Donald Hall. Some of these did not end well, but some, when they did, strike me as partnerships of immeasurable beauty. Donald Hall describes the rhythm of daily life on his family farm during his 23-year marriage to the late poet Jane Kenyon. We did not spend our days gazing into each other's eyes. We did that gazing when we made love or when one of us was in trouble. But most of the time, our gazes met and entwined as they looked at a third thing. Third things are essential to marriages, objects or practices or habits or arts or institutions or games or human beings that provide a site of joint rapture or contentment. Each member of a couple is separate. The two come together in double attention. 
Lovemaking is not a third thing, but two in one. John Keats can be a third thing, or the Boston Symphony Orchestra, or Dutch Interiors, or Monopoly. For many couples, children are a third thing. Later in the essay, he adds, sometimes you lose a third thing. I find that really fabulous, that that idea of a third thing in a marriage. But I also found it interesting in the relationship to memoir, um, in the way that you are weaving in these other people's lives and these other quotes. It kind of flips the idea of memoir being inward and interior, or even in a negative way, navel-gazing. It feels like you're bringing the third thing into the memoir, mm. like that the memoir is looking at the world. I don't know if that makes sense. I love that. No, that's beautiful. Yeah. And you know, you've called a memoir an act of generosity, which suggests this idea of looking out versus looking in. But I, I would love it if you could talk a little bit more about that inversion of sort of the superficial or common trope of what a memoir is. Mm. Yeah, you know, in, in with Hourglass, I, at a certain point, almost wanted the book to be a commonplace book itself, um, a, a commonplace book of marriage. Um, I had probably twice as many quotes um, in the first draft of Hourglass than ended up in the book itself. Um, and that comes, I think, very much from the impulse that I have and that I've had for a long time uh, of keeping these commonplace books of um, I think of it as like my anti-Twitter, like my, my you know, writing down these, the, the, the wisdom that pierces me or language that pierces me that I want to not just remember but almost um, ingest and, and have it become a part of me. Um, and so in the writing of Hourglass, I actually had to, um, especially in, in subsequent drafts, I had to fight the impulse to think, well, you know, R Rilke said this better. I think I'll just turn to him. Or I'm just going to turn to Virginia Woolf here in, instead of actually um, drilling down deep into um, maybe maybe trusting that I might be able to say it most eloquently in terms of what I was trying to get at. Um, but that outward gazing as opposed to navel gazing um, is to me, uh, in a way... An, an impulse that informs much of, of, of really, really good, strong memoir. Um, not so much, I think it was Vivian Gornick who once said, you don't get credit for living. It might have been Annie Dillard. They're, they're both equally acerbic on the subject of, you know, sort of navel-gazing and memoir. Um, and that's never interested me. But in Hourglass, more than in any other work, I mean, I think in my memoir, Devotion, I quote quite a bit as well, but in, in this book, it just felt like the, um, the ways in which my, um, my literary heroes and heroines and um, the, the thinkers I most admire were, um, and, and thinking about them, I think of some of the writers that I quote in Hourglass not as quoting sort of distant literary figures, but as quoting intimate friends that are part of, even if I've never met them, I never knew Virginia Woolf, but as far as I'm concerned, she's my mentor. Our mentors don't have to actually be our MFA teachers or, you know, there are, 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 or, uh, you know, our, our contemporaries. Um, and so 
that was a huge part of the of the 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 discovery and the joy in it was kind of thinking about like when when I stumbled upon which I did I had not ever read that essay of Don Hall's where he wrote about the third thing and then when I read that I I just thought oh the wisdom of that and the um and the wisdom also in Don's case um he and Jane Kenyon did not have children together and in thinking about what that what what the idea of a third thing means in a couple I you know my my son is 18 now I've seen too many people make their children their third thing and then what um you know, kind of stand there looking at each other thinking, well, that chapter is over. Um, my husband and I never did that. Our, I mean, we are incredibly devoted parents, but we never did that. And a large part of why we didn't is because we had other third things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I recognized it and I understood it. And I just, you know, found the wisdom in it so powerful. Well, I want to I wanna turn and talk a little bit about your husband in relationship to the book. I'm curious about if if the naming him M mm. is part of the the distancing in a in a way that perhaps you're doing in your journal in, in third person, but I'm also wanted to just touch on the the moment in in the book when a lot of your central anxieties come out. Not only that your husband possibly wasn't thriving, and that he was stuck in his life, but that somehow you could have been complicit or a perpetrator of this, of his life going off the rails because of choices that. You, were made by the two of you together mm-hmm. that maybe he wouldn't have made alone. Mm-hmm. So you imagine those other lives that might have happened. Was that anxiety something that you discovered in the process of writing Hourglass or something that fueled the the beginning of Hourglass? Mm-hmm. Um, well, a couple of things. Um, to go back to the M question, um, it was very, it, he was M from the beginning of the writing of this book. And I think there were a few reasons for that. One, I mean, a simple one would be that there were there was the D and the M in the honeymoon journals, but that wasn't really the reason. I think it was also a way of transforming him from the very beginning into a character. Um, and then in the writing, I discovered or remembered that there's a great literary precedent for, for that. You know, Virginia Woolf referred to Leonard as L., um, at some point, I was quoting Mary Oliver, and Mary Oliver refers to her longtime partner, uh, Molly Cook Malone, as M, her own M. Mm. Um, but it wasn't, it, it was, it actually had, it, it was for literary reasons, but those are more the superficial reasons. The, the deeper reason actually has to do with the music of the book itself. There are no names in the book. The only name in the book, I think, is Jacob. Everyone else is my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my 92-year-old aunt, my 80-year-old Buddhist friend, my piano teacher. These people who appear in the book are unnamed. And the book felt, to use that word delicate again, the book felt so delicate to me. It felt like I was spinning this kind of gossamer web and any anything, you know, if my husband's name is Michael, you know, there's been there have been one or two people who have written, you know, things that are like as if I was trying to... <laughs> withhold his identity. I mean, he is nothing but visible. It takes about a nanosecond on, you know, any search engine to find out his name. I was not protecting him in that way. Um, But it did have to do uh, with this sense of just this delicacy and that if, you know, his name is Michael, you know, if it had been Michael, 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 Michael over the course of the book, the music of the book would have changed. And so 
and it was it was it was closer to poetry in a way than to prose what I was trying to do mm-hmm. and so it came out of that but your 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 second question is really interesting to me because no I did not go into the writing that was one of the discoveries um and it was a discovery that came through the shaping of of the of the narrative and of of, of such as it is and of the book itself um we when 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 Am and I met, um, he was a war correspondent. Um, in fact, he had been described to me by a mutual friend who had wanted to fix us up. This isn't this isn't in the book. She had wanted to fix us up, and she had described him to me uh, as a war correspondent who lived in Africa, who spent most of his time there, and um, you know occasionally was at his place in the East Village, but mostly was in war zones. And I wasn't interested in meeting him because I. The thought of spending my life with somebody or dating somebody who was a war correspondent kind of wasn't in my DNA. Um, and uh, I'm someone who prefers sort of hearth and home and, you know, sitting by the fireplace with everyone I love under one roof. And um, the risks that I have tended to take in my life are much more interior. They're not physical risks. And, um, and so when we did meet and we did get together, it was never discussed between us. There was never a conversation or a negotiation or, um, I mean, not even a no dialogue about, well, are you thinking, are you going to go back there? Or, you know, if, if you're going to go back there, I don't know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. It never happened. He never went back. He never went back to Africa. And, and I write in the book about moments where he felt some pull. Um, and there were more moments than that when the Nairobi bombing happened. It was like it happened on his turf. Um, and there was a feeling of um, wanting to be there. But it wasn't a tortured feeling of wanting to be there. It was just like, wow, I can't believe I'm not there. It's very much a journalist's way of moving through the world, of wanting to be where the action is. I want to watch the, the action from, you know, inside, you know, in, 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 through the window, again, with a cup of tea. Um and so in thinking about that and exploring that and trying to understand how what are the ways in which we have shaped and formed each other and, and really making myself ask that really hard question. Um, and it's interesting because I, I, I know that his response to that question is, you know, if I had gone back, I'd probably be dead. Or if I had gone back, eventually, like I wanted to stop doing it, I didn't know how, and then I met you. But there's also the truth of the fact that um, he changed careers and he entered another really tough field. But he had been at the top of his game as a war correspondent, and then he was starting at the beginning of uh, becoming a screenwriter at the age of 40. And he's had quite a lot of success, but it's a really hard life with a lot of uncertainty Mm -hmm. and um, kind of uh, just g- gray areas and just not knowing, not knowing whether something's going to come together. And so living with, and, and a screenplay that's unproduced doesn't exist. You know, when, you, right. when you're a writer and you write prose, um, he was used to filing a story and seeing it on the front page of the paper the next day. Um, you know, a, 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 just instant gratification, essentially. Um, and a screenplay, 
even when it is produced, it doesn't end up being the screenwriters very often. So, so he was going through a lot of that kind of um, creative dissatisfaction. And what I really need to, needed to look at um, in the context of writing the book and thinking about what is the, to, in, in the ways that we have conflict, what has caused it, and what, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean in these, eight, these 18 years that, because one of the central questions for me when I began the book was, what, what is it to walk alongside someone? you know, for the duration, that Wendell Berry phrase, the problems of duration. Mm -hmm. um, and in walking alongside someone, uh, always through time, there is that dance, there is that question of, um, of, of how is this partnership, how, how, how does this interaction affect each person individually? And, and so that became something I had to look at. And it was very much inside of the book, in the middle of the book, deep into it, that I began to really pull that out, pull the, pull the threads of that out. I'd love to talk a little bit about writing about people you love and mm -hmm. the risks of that. It, I would think a lot of people would imagine, oh, the most likely place for conflict between you and your husband would be writing about your husband, mm -hmm. when in fact, in this case... Um, He's always been your first reader, but even in this case, when he's being written about for the first time, he was someone who's pushing for you to be tr more truthful and and um, not asking you to pull punches or to um, spare him. Not that he he doesn't come across well, mm -hmm. but um, but you've written a lot about writing about people um, who you love or people you love, n you not wanting to read what mm. what you've written. Mm. Um, so I think, for instance, the essay, The Me My Child Mustn't Know, um, or the, what, probably one of my favorite essays that you wrote on the ethics of writing called Evil Tongue, mm -hmm. uh, which is based on the Jewish prohibition, Lashon Hara. Um, and you'd mentioned that you grew up in an Orthodox household. So I'm, I'm imagining the Evil Tongue prohibition was something that was around mm -hmm. as, as you grew up. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious about it a little bit, the notion of evil speech um, which has a very different consideration than perhaps the ethics we might find in contemporary memoir. But how do those two intersect for you? Mm. Um, and, and when you're trying to navigate what you're going to say and, and who you're going to portray. Mm. No, I, I'm, I'm glad you liked Evil Tongue. I mean, that, that, that essay took me years to crack because I had been told this really pretty terrible story about my grandfather who I never really knew, my father's father, uh, in which he behaved really poorly. Um, and I had no doubt that the story was true, but I wondered what right I had to tell it. And, and he was uh, a very big public and he was, figure. And he was, a, he was a public figure who was beloved and, and very respected in, in the world of, of modern uh, or, orthodoxy. Um, and, and I really, I, but I couldn't let it go. I, it was, you know... When somebody, when you get an email out of the blue from someone who says to you, I knew your grandfather, I knew your father, I knew your uncle, all of these people are dead um, and long dead for me. And you get an email like that from somebody who says, I have a really terrible story. Do you want to hear it? You know, I, I, I couldn't, of course I wanted to hear it. I wanted to hear any story about, about my family. And, um, and then it was a haunting, haunting story. And 
I just carried it around with me for years and I couldn't figure out what to do with it. And then one day, or what right I had, and then one day I suddenly thought I can write about writing about it. And by writing about writing about it, I can write about it. I can write about my struggle with, um, uh, and then and then the piece of, of, of Lashon Hara and, and Evil Tongue fell very nicely into place in that essay. And I started reading, you know, there's an amazing amount of, of material about Lashon Hara, and I was fascinated by it as a concept because um, as a religious concept in Judaism, you pretty much can't get out of bed in the morning without committing Lashon Hara. I mean, every it's not even just like lies and white lies and stories it's, and, and spreading stories and gossip. It's things like, if I were to invite you to a party uh, that I knew you probably wouldn't be able to go to, and thereby forcing you to make an excuse, thereby not telling the exact truth, I would be committing Lashon Hara. Things that are just, I mean, the Talmud is nothing if not unbelievably hair-splitting on, <laughs> on all subjects. But, um, and, and it may have been a bit of a sleight of hand because I do end up telling the story, but I, I told it in a way that was at its core looking at my responsibility and culpability. What did it mean to be the bearer of this tale? Um, and was it something that was um, a sense of honoring in some way my family by being the writer among them or betraying them? And it's something that I always wanted to be very clear-eyed about uh, and hope that I am. Uh, the other essay that you referenced, and it was not my title, it was the New York Times Book Review's title, The Me My Child Mustn't Know, um, had to do with not wanting my son, who at that time was probably uh, like 12 years old or so, to hear me on the radio, radio reading an old, uh, it, was an, it, was an, it was an old recording from This American Life that was being rebroadcast and not wanting him to hear it and taking some pains to make sure he didn't hear it. Uh, as we were driving around doing errands, uh, and he was an NPR, you know, fan, and he liked listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Car Talk, and I was turning off the radio. I was like, what, what, why, why, Mom? And um, and I ended up writing an essay about that moment, pretty much ensuring that my son would, in fact, then, you know, see see the see the essay, and then therefore be able to listen to this this American Life. I, I didn't really think that through entirely. Yeah, but I do love that they become metafictional. Not that I think you necessarily get a, away from the conundrum or the the concern of whether about writing about others, but it's very fascinating that you use that as a way to navigate your way into a uh, an engagement with the question. Yeah, I mean it. it 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 it's just really interesting to me, both as a teacher and as a writer, and and as 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 someone who thinks a lot about, um, I mean, with, with with my son, for example, uh, when he was born, I looked at him and I thought, you did not ask to be born to a mother who's a writer. What am I going to do about this? Because I've just been changed by your birth, and I, um, it's going to be really hard for me not to write about you at all. So, what are my rules for myself? And the only rule that I've ever really had is I hope that someday he's not 30 years old and look, you know, and, and or some age of, 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 of real maturity and turning to me and saying, I wish you hadn't written that. And that's been my barometer for yeah. him. Um, well, I'm curious about your barometer in a larger sense. 
um, putting aside Lashon Hara, which has its extremely stringent rules, um, you had the an interview in Zizava, and you quote Cynthia Ozick, who says, to be a writer, you have to be a monster, and Joan Didion's description of the writer as betrayer. And you seem to be putting in potential opposition the desire for self-improvement as a human and the desire to develop as a writer. Mm. Um, and they're not necessarily in, mm. in, in conflict, but they certainly can be yeah. in conflict. So how do you, is, is the dance very uh, person specific? So you have this boundary for your, your child and you might have a different one for your mom. Yeah, I think it is person specific. Um, and it's also, um, I don't remember whether I said this in the, in the interview in Ziziva, but um, Cynthia Ozick actually wrote to me and said, you are not a monster. Um, she had read Still Writing and she admired it but she didn't mean that as a compliment. You know, what she was saying was... Oh, wow. Yeah. You she should was, have been a monster. I, I, yeah, that, like, yeah, yeah. She would, she would have liked to see me be a little bit more monstrous. And uh, I, I think that for me, I, I mean, I've written some extremely rough things about my mother, uh, both when she was alive and after she died. I actually found it more difficult to write her, about her after she died. Um, but because I, I felt like I was getting the last word and when she was alive, she was a formidable opponent and I felt like we were in a battle and my part of the battle was that I was trying to, you know, get at the truth of our relationship in some way on the page because I couldn't get at it in our relationship in, in, in real life. Um, and, and I've written probably, I've, I've written, I think, quite honestly about my father uh, and in ways that if he were alive, well, if he were alive, everything would be different. But if he were alive, I think he might feel betrayed by uh, in terms of privacy. Um, and, you know, when it came to writing Hourglass, that was a huge, I mean, the very first thing I did after I realized that this was, that the essay wasn't an essay, that it was a book and that I wanted to write about marriage, is I, I was away and I, I wasn't with Michael. I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, I'm thinking about doing this. And he, he, he gave me permission. I think if he hadn't given me permission, and by permission I mean like in the deepest sense, like go for it, I wouldn't have written it. Hmm. And does that make me not a monster? Does that make me the fact that I'm not a monster less of an artist? Like these are, I don't believe that. I, um, and and maybe part of why I don't believe that is that I do think it's perf person specific, mm -hmm. um, and that there are um, that there are people that I would go to uh, endless lengths to protect in my life, and people that I wouldn't. Um, and in terms of in terms of write, the, I think the high wire act of writing this book was I wanted to try to tell the truth, a, a really deep truth about marriage that would resonate with readers, um, and 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 that would, you know, in that way that a really specific experience can, but I didn't want to betray my marriage. Mm -hmm. And so finding that place, like where, where I was, I was worried about burnishment. I was worried about it being um, too seamless. I was worried about not showing the fissures and the cracks. And that's why that moment that you referenced, we're in the middle of, in the middle of the book and in the middle of the writing of the book where M turns to me and says, I'm an okay guy, but you're not being hard enough on me. Um, that was another, that was a deeper level of permission and a deeper level of giving me a gift because he was more interested in my writing a great book 
than he was about protecting himself. Yeah. And that has something to do with literary partnership, I think. The third, maybe the third thing. Our third thing. I mean, when we, when I would read him pages at night, we were not talking about our marriage. We were talking about literature. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the book Devotion in relationship to your marriage. Uh, your, your book Devotion was about a spiritual crisis and reconnecting into a spiritual path for yourself. And you said that it is a book that most people ask you about the absence of your husband in it. Um, you've answered that while he's also Jewish, he's an atheist, and that's not part of his journey uh, that you are exploring. But it's an interesting parallel because your father was an Orthodox Jew, and you've said also that your mother, while keeping an Orthodox home, probably wasn't, wouldn't have in another context. Maybe she was a non-believer, mm -hmm. perhaps. But I was wondering if it was difficult to navigate finding or reclaiming a spiritual path to go on a journey that wasn't a shared journey in mm. that regard, uh, mm. even if it wasn't creating conflict. Um, you have the, the, the conspicuous absence of your partner in mm. this, this re-devotion. Mm. It's interesting. I, I never thought of it that way, and I think part of why is that it felt like something singular that I was doing. Like I was carving a new path where one hadn't existed, where there had been these very prescribed paths, a very prescribed path, a way that I was supposed to live, a way that I was supposed to grow up, and a way that I was supposed to believe. And in creating a, a you know, a, a way, like a, a way that worked for me, um, you know, I guess what I'm thinking about is, as, as you asked the question, you know, after after devotion, after the period of time that I was writing about that sort of that excavation of, you know, that 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 uh, that investigative journalism of, you know, this spiritual crisis at this t time in my life, um, our son was getting to be an age where he was going to be bar mitzvahed or not, um, and. I completely handled that. Like we, I created something that um, we live in Litchfield County, Connecticut, which is not a Jewish stronghold. And um, I created something called the, Lit the Litchfield County Mishpacha Group. Mishpacha means family in Hebrew. Um, and I had um, kids who were Jewish or had a Jewish parent or there was interest from all over Litchfield County coming to our house once a month. And I brought in I'd become friends with a lot of rabbis while I was writing devotion, and I, I, these rabbis came uh, together. They were a, a couple um, of female rabbis, and they like brought this incredible um, spiritual uh, like meaning and beauty into into my home. Uh, and Michael was there for that, and he was affected by that, and he enjoyed it. Um, but it wasn't something that he was doing with me. And the planning of Jacob's bar mitzvah was entirely a kind of creating a very different, modern, um, rigorous in the sense that it, it wasn't just like, you know, kumbaya and playing, playing Leonard Cohen and then having a party. <laughs> <laughs> Although there was a little of that. But there were, you know, there were readings ranging from, like, I, I remember uh, Hannah Tinty, who's a close friend of ours, read a Hannah Arendt poem and... Mm -hmm. Our friend, the actor Jack Gilpin, got up and read Coleridge, and yet at the same time, Jacob did his Torah portion, and there was music. And so, I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
it was one of the happiest days of my life. It was pure joy. And I think, I don't know that I could have done that with someone. It's like I had to singularly and and in my own, um, you know, sort of like forge my own path out of the way that I had been raised. And, uh, and, and Michael had been raised in a completely different way. It, 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 it's like I just had to... Um, find my way. I didn't feel like I needed my partner to be doing that with me. It also didn't involve um, a path that meant going places together or going joining something or um, it, it felt extremely personal and mm-hmm. idiosyncratic. Well, to piggyback on this discussion, you've written a lot about the use of ritual uh, as an important part of a writing practice. And you've compared your daily yoga practice to your father's lane of tefillin in the mm-hmm. morning. Um, how the ritual itself made prayer possible for him, especially on days when you didn't feel like praying. Um, And likewise with you and yoga. Um, You've said that a cool, smooth mind is attainable only through the body, and that this sort of body-based ritual is the opposite of searching or grasping for language. So there's this sort of paradox that Mm -hmm. by going the opposite direction of grasping for language, there's some it becomes a facilitator for a language mm. eventually. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on mm. that, mm. on this body-based mm. ritual, whether it would be laying tefillin if you were an Orthodox Jew or um, doing doing yoga mm-hmm. or some other practice mm-hmm. um, as a part of how, you, how that plays an essential role for you in writing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like that observation a lot. Um, you know, in, in the years that I taught academically, I could never have imagined um, sort of reaching a place of having really essentially my own philosophy about this, where I, um, when I teach now, I get my students meditating, um, I give them exercises and readings as they're coming out of meditation uh, before the mind can start uh, churning again. Um, you know, Grace, Grace Paley, and I've quoted her on this before, but um, she was my teacher, and when <clears throat> when she was my teacher, um, I remember her saying that she used to write in the bathtub, and I thought that she meant that she wrote in the bathtub, like that she actually was lying there writing with a pad and a pen. That was my image. Um, and it was years and years later, in the way that sometimes really great teachers, the things that they say just morph on you and you suddenly understand them in your own life a long time later. And one day I was taking a bath in the middle of the day, as I often do, and I thought, oh... Grace meant that she took a bath. You know, she meant that she took a break and that she did something that quieted her mind. I think um, to generalize that writers have very kinetic, active, uh, churning minds that are only, um, that only settle through the act of writing. Uh, I know that's certainly true for me, but to even get to that place of being able to have a quiet enough mind to be able to even sit down and get to work, um, I've come to really feel like that's that's in the body, like that our stories are in our bodies and that, you know, whether it's yoga or it's meditation or it's walking, I mean, in, in devotion, I quote this beautiful list of instructions that Jane Kenyon left for writers. And one of them was literally just walk, you know, just take a walk. Um, Another one, which is very quaint now, is um, don't an- avoid the phone. <laughs> like, really, that's like yeah. 
so so old school, and I like I, I, I long <laughs> for the days where I was avoiding the phone. Um, but that kind of um, uh, just settling and daily settling um, is something that I I really f- feel and and sense the difference very much in my own in in my own writing life. Um, if I if I begin the day with a practice that has to do with um, noticing, witnessing what's going on in, in my mind. Not so much, I mean, what does that even mean, quieting the mind? I mean, anyone who meditates knows it's essentially, um, I mean, what, the, uh, two seconds at the most that someone can actually uh, go, go without a thought and then you know you notice that you're thinking, and you go back to sitting, and you follow the breath, and then there's and suddenly suddenly there you are, and you're thinking again. Um, so that kind of witnessing, that kind of noticing, um, I think is uh, is is just essential. And mm-hmm. and I um, I have a, a lot of students and former students who, um, in one way or another, have practices that have come out of that kind of that that way of thinking. Well. You mentioned Grace Paley, and there's, I think, thankfully, a renewed interest right now yeah, in her work. Yeah, so wonderful. Um, after a, a while, when I, I know whenever I've talked with Ursula K. Le Guin, she always mentions Grace Paley as the woman she's most concerned is going to disappear from the canon, and it seems like there's this this upswelling of interest at the moment. I'm sure a lot of people would be curious to know what it was like being her student. Mm. Uh, do you have any anecdotes you could share other than the, the bathtub? Mm. I think more than anything, my impression of her, you know, the when I got to Sarah Lawrence, I didn't know that there were writers. I knew that there were books. I didn't connect in my mind that people actually spend their lives writing these books and that that was possible for anyone, much less for me. So here was this, like, this just sturdy, amazing funny, moral, smart, unbelievably generous woman who was there in her office all the time. I mean, just accessible to her students. Like, you just couldn't believe the stores of compassion and generosity she had. Somebody was always on her lap. You know, they'd just be sitting on her lap. And um, and at the same time, I had this awareness that she was a a brilliant writer, concise and uh, just with a, a voice all her own, um, who was writing those stories, was getting those stories written, who was coming up to Sarah Lawrence and driving or taking the train a half an hour north to Bronxville and teaching and having this impact on these students' lives. And she was a mother and she was a wife and she was a social activist. Um, class used to get canceled because she was in jail. You know, there'd just be like a sign on the door that, um, you know, come back another day. Um, and so it was really what she modeled for me more than anything, that sense of um, of just possibility. And there were other writers, too, at Sarah Lawrence who uh, I felt that way about as, as well. But there was a kind of um, centeredness and certainty, like a certitude about who she was and what mattered uh, that was somehow encapsulated in this very, very generous heart. And to have both of those things, to have this 
generosity and warmth and openness and also a sense of absolute certainty you know, in who she was and what mattered. Um, so these are all things that I couldn't have articulated at the time, but I think became uh, tremendously important to me as I, as I embarked on a, on a writing life. Yeah. And, and I love so much that she's, that she's having a moment. Me too. Know, uh, it seems like it's probably the beginning of something more than a moment. Yes, hopefully. no, a reclamation. Exactly, exactly. Hopefully. Yeah. So, has your next project seized you? Do do you have an uh, inkling of what we're going to expect next, or is this is that way too premature? Well, no, it's not too premature. Usually, it would be at this stage in in um, in in my writing life when when I have a book just out. Um, and as we're talking, Hourglass has been out for a month. I, I, there's usually no way that I, I, I've always longed to be immersed in a new project when a when a book comes out because I've, I have thought that it would make somehow the grasping part of a publication easier. Um, I, I now know it doesn't, and also to be careful what you ask for because I am well into a new book. You know, I, I, I keep on waiting to return to fiction. I keep on thinking that I will return to fiction. And I do think that I will return to fiction. However. <laughs> <laughs> the um, accidental memoirist the, ac- the accidental memoirist is now going to, like, they're going to be, the number of memoirs and the number of novels are going to be equal after this next book. But, All right. But I, um, yeah, I can't really talk much about it, but I, I can just say that I, um, I discovered uh, really kind of a seismic, massive secret um, that I can do nothing but write about. Wow. Yeah. I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and if I'm, I turn the microphone down, can you say it? <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm well into the writing. I really started almost. Yeah. In, I, dis, I discovered this massive se- seismic secret literally two weeks after I completed the final draft of Hourglass. Wow. So it was a gift. It was a, it was a, it was a huge gift that I didn't discover it earlier. Yeah. Because I think in that gossamer delicate structure that is this book, uh, it, I don't know what would have happened. Well, I loved having you on between the covers today, Danny. I love talking with you, David. Thank you. We were talking today to Danny Shapiro, the author of Hourglass. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, Listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.